Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Your first coaches were your mom and dad who taught you how to communicate, tie your shoes, or play a simple game of catch. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large sometimes naturally re- react in one language because maybe there are certain expressions that exist in that language and don't in English. Welcome back to the Coaching Call podcast. My guest is Nicholas Kemp. He is the founder and head coach of Ikigai Tribe, a small community of educators, psychologists, coaches, and trainers who serve others using the Ikigai concept. Good morning from New York. And Nick, you, it's not morning for you, is it? No, it's it's just gone 9 p.m. here in Melbourne, Australia. So good morning to you, uh, Sifu Raphael. Thank you for having me on. And good evening to you, my friend. So we're going to talk about some interesting stuff today. I'm so excited. And, and definitely before we even get into what you have created, what you're doing to impact your community and the world, if you will, I'd love to know more about you as a person. How was your childhood like? What impacted you? And who would you say was your biggest impact growing up? Ooh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. But I guess I had a very happy happy childhood in, actually was born in a place called Hornsby and grew up in a place called Glenway, uh, not Glenway, Glenhaven in New South Wales and had Sort of the best childhood you have, horses, swimming pool. I wanted to be Bjorn Borg, so I loved playing tennis. And then one day my mother came to school just after school year had started, and, yeah, we we got in a car and left that life and moved to Melbourne. So, yeah, it was pretty dramatic. Obviously there were problems with her and my father and yeah, so that was probably the biggest impactful thing on my life that mm. kind of, yes, in some way still impacts me today. Um, I often think both my parents have since died, um, my father fairly recently, um, but my mother 20 years ago. Um, yeah, so that was a dramatic life-changing event. So that's, <laughs> I think I answered the first part of your question. And I think as kids, you're quite resilient. So you're very adaptable to change as a child. I think later in life, you begin to understand the implications of decisions or changes. It's quite hard to pick someone as who impacted me. I mean, I'd still sort of say both my parents. Um, my mother exposed me to lots of friends, um, to embrace different cultures, to embrace different people. Mm. But I, I really didn't have a 
probably a, a male role model growing up, if I think about it. So, yeah, and there weren't any standout um, teachers. So I'd, I'd probably say my mother. And and so your mom kind of pulled you from the the environment you were in and she, she took you to a different environment. And it wasn't because it was a choice that you made. It was a choice that she made and probably a choice that she made for both of you, obviously. How old were you when, when you were when you went to Melbourne? So I was eight. And yeah, it sort of seemed normal at the time. But then many years later, when you become a parent yourself, you start to question, mm. yeah, your parents' decision and think, well, you could have maybe moved to a different suburb, not interstate. So <sighs> yeah, I, I'll never really know why. Um, we, we did discuss it, but um, probably I, I, as a parent, I, don't, I wouldn't understand the decision, but she, maybe she had to make the decision for us or maybe she felt that. But, yeah, I still had a great childhood and teenagehood and felt loved, so it wasn't um, super damaging or anything. <laughs> it was just, not, I guess, not normal, yeah. Yeah, no, I got you. So, for example, Nick, when when we think about um, the trajectory of our life, it's it's usually our parents who have the biggest influence when we're young, right? And then it's it's the choices that we make along the way, right? Whether our parents make them for us, or in the beginning, of course, our parents are gonna even tell us what kind of foods to eat, where we go, what playgrounds we play in, even who our friends are. But as we get older and older, we start to, maybe even if we're rebels, right, if you will, we start to make our own way, our own journey. We create the path of where we want to lead or where we are now was a lot from the actions that we took or the actions we didn't take. And so that's what takes us to where we are. What I'd love to know is, you're a J Japan. I can't even say it. Could you say it for me? A Japanologist, right? Japanologist. Yeah. They, I mean, it's, that, I guess that's so. why I have you here. <laughs> it's a weird term. It just it just means someone who seriously studies an aspect of Japanese culture or Japanese culture in general. So it's certainly not a qualification or anything like that. No, no, no. I get that part. But what what inspired you or who inspired you and do you remember that moment in time when you wanted to study more about the Japanese culture the way they did things and so forth yeah so this is interesting because it might go back to 1977 when I was five mm. my father was a physicist and this is when my parents were still together and he was doing some really niche research and he was asked, he worked for the Australian government, so he was asked to go and share his research basically in uh, five to ten countries that included Japan. And so he was given the money to purchase a first-class ticket, and so he decided to take the family instead. Mm. So I, I have these fond memories of Japan, um, very sort of vague, but I, I remember I I think I fell in love with this babysitter. My, my parents had to go out one evening in the hotel, hired a babysitter, and I think she folded origami and played with me and my brother. Mm. So 
that must have been yeah planted a seed that oh Japan's a interesting place. And then I went back 18 years later in 1995. I was awarded a, a traineeship to to learn how to cook and manage a restaurant. So at that time, there were a lot of tourists coming into Australia, and I was working in hospitality. And I was just thinking, oh, how cool would it be to go to Japan and learn the language and and live there? And yeah, I did that, and then came back to Australia. And this company that was going to open a chain of restaurants, yeah, it sort of had all these problems. And I, I kind of felt, okay, it's not going to happen. And I actually wanted to go back to Japan, so I found another way to do that. I went and taught English, like many uh, people do.、Mm-hmm. And then eventually that led me to opening my own school and, and getting married. Kind of found my entrepreneurial spirit, I think, in Japan first. And then, yeah, I guess the the Japanology is something fairly recent. I I, I realized about four years ago that oh look, I do have a knowledge of the language of the culture, but I haven't really studied it seriously as a, like a serious leisure pursuit. And so it all came about from this this word that we'll talk about,、um, I'm sure later. Yeah. So that's when I thought, yeah, Japan's been good to me. It's given me so much. It's connected me to people. I've got these great Japanese friends. Got a, a beautiful wife. Got son who was born in、uh, born in Japan. And so I thought I really should study it and in, in a way try and give back and represent Japanese culture authentically. Nice, nice. So you did say that you opened up your school in Japan. What kind of school was that? Ah,、uh, <laughs> nothing exciting. Just a English conversation school.、So. Okay. And that was in a very small town where my wife was from, but I, I was sick of working at the commercial schools. So that was kind of my first step into starting a business or starting your own side hustle. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you do have that school for? Oh, this is yeah. The, this is one of those beautiful things when you realize, okay, running your own business isn't as easy as you you know as you imagine it would be. I, I did that for four years,、mm. and then at that time, my son was three, and we we felt returning to Australia, a multicultural, would probably be better for his education, and it was sort of time for me to go back. At that stage, I'd been there for. Another six years, and yeah, there was all sort of all these other co- complications, and yeah, we decided to to return to Australia. So that was in two thousand and eight. Gotcha. And、uh, so, you know, you talked about your mom taking you from one place to another, and whether you know it or not, you just did that to your son, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, but I didn't leave my wife. So, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but here's here's the thing. So, you speak the language now, right? Yes. And does your son as well? Hopefully, well, he'll come back speaking、um, a bit of Japanese. So, the astounding thing about a child is when we left Japan, he was already fluent for a、mm. three and a half year old,、right. and he actually spent. The equivalent of his kindergarten in Japan,、mm. and that was a really positive experience. And then, of course, once we got back here, we were thinking, "Oh, 
got and get him speaking English. And, and it only took, yeah, it only really took six months for the switch. And we, yeah, we actually put him in school early. And, and now his, his understanding and listening skills are excellent because my wife only speaks Japanese in the mm. house. Um, can't speak English, but he just chooses to speak Japanese really just because she wants to. That's awesome. And that's, that's, that's really good for, for my son and myself too. And I think his, his pronunciation would be better than mine, let's say. But, yeah, he's, he's 18, so he's, you know, your typical, being a typical teen, and he, <laughs> he's not really interested in learning how to speak Japanese fluently. So it's more about, um, you know, gaming and music and all that sort of thing. But he's been in Japan for the last two weeks. So it'd be interesting to see if he's picked up um, a little more. Yeah. Some kids don't understand that the value of being bilingual, right? Because it, it really does, I believe personally, that it does something to our brain. Yeah. Because it's, it's how are we thinking and what language are we thinking? How are we processing what we're listening to? And so that to me is, uh, I'm bilingual. And for, for me, it's really interesting when I can think in either language. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so fascinating when, when I even encounter kids who know three languages, four languages, five. And I'm like, what language are you thinking in now? <laughs> it's kind of cool when you think about it. Oh, it's amazing. It is amazing when you get to that level where you sometimes naturally re react in one language because mm. maybe there are certain expressions that exist in that language and don't in English. Right. And you, you develop these habits and cues and responses. And I remember when I first came back after that uh, six years, I would have this habit of bowing or just blurting out Japanese words to people and then saying, oh, sorry, I, I meant to say you know, right, right. something else. And, yeah, the, the ability for children to, to learn um, language is incredible. And it is kind of a tragedy that most children don't learn a second language. Mm -hmm. And then as I'm experiencing now, I'm sort of really focused on uh, learning written Japanese again, like I can read reasonably well, mm -hmm. but I really want to become proficient at reading. And that's just so time consuming. It's oh, without a doubt. The real challenge, but it's a worthwhile challenge. You, you know, I, um, I have a martial arts school as well. I, I have several businesses, I'm an entrepreneur like yourself. So one, one of the things the other day I was doing some of the kids, I'm teaching them public speaking, right? And so one kid turns around, says to the other, hey, you're going to be going to seventh grade. What language are you going to be taking? And I turned around and I said to both of them, you both should take English. <laughs> they looked at me like, yeah, because this is why we're doing public speaking. You guys barely speak. Like, oh, I see. <laughs> but it's cute that they were interested in what other language they're going to start learn and and the school system here in the u.s where i am in new york they do do that you know when you get to a certain age or certain uh, level they do incorporate a second language and 
one of the things that when my kids went through it, they, I speak Spanish, they both went into, I want to learn more Spanish. So I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, they know that I speak Spanish. Their mom spoke Italian and German. So they're like a little confused. So they, they, (laughs) they chose my language to go with and it was it was pretty interesting for them and the the cool thing is they would always come back to me and ask me hey how do you say this and and i will like you know this is how it's done and so forth so it was was pretty interesting nice yeah my son actually took a similar model so i think language is compulsory in primary school and that was japanese and then it was an elective in high school and he either had japanese or german Obviously, he took Japanese, but as you would know, it's it's such a old school, slow learning a methodology they incorporate. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing like immersing yourself in in the culture and language. If you're fortunate to you know to live in a Spanish speaking country or to to live in Japan. Mm-hmm. You, you know, when we think about language, we think about communication we think about the words right because the words can and i tell this to the kids you know be careful with the words you use because a word can make someone feel big and and awesome Mm. or it can make them feel really tiny and small so it's those words it's it's the impact that words have so you know there's a particular word ikibai right am i saying that right it could it calls ikigai yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because you, you, you've also, you have a tribe, right? <laughs> Trying to build one, a small community, but I guess I have a tribe. It's, it's about 40, 40 members. Yeah. Okay. That's beautiful. So let's talk about that because that's one of the concepts that you, you're bringing forth and, and you're helping people understand things a little differently. You know, you're a coach as well, correct? Yes. But let, let's get into what made you get into you, you. You like the culture. We got that. Um, what made you go deeper into the concepts? Because the, the culture is, is very different. And you, you said it earlier when you came back to Australia, when you came to Australia, you were bowing and you're like, oh, oh sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know what? That That's something that's a lost art, I believe definitely in in many cultures where we don't i i think about is showing respect for the other person and we don't sometimes do that in other cultures we don't show the respect initially mm-hmm. we don't respect our elders and a lot of times we don't respect someone maybe because they're in a lower position than we are yeah. maybe they're the janitor maybe they clean or maybe they just washed your car or they served you food and we don't have respect for them. Meanwhile, me personally, I respect every human being, no matter who they are, what position they're in. And so that I, I believe that we should be more respectful, more bowing. And it's not bowing because you're superior to me, is bowing because I respect who you are. I totally agree. I agree. We we can have this opportunity with every person to connect and show respect and compassion, understanding, and that can be a real gift to 
to show, I guess, what we might call, you know, essential workers that often people dismiss, you know, delivery drivers, janitors, and um, most people wouldn't give them the time of day or wouldn't even say thank you. So I think saying things like thank you, asking them how they are, um, these little things, just treat them like a friend, you know. Why, why wouldn't you treat them with the respect you, you have for your friends? So I totally agree. And that that is something I learned in Japan, I think, to appreciate more. And on, on that subject of how you use words, that's something Japanese are very careful with. They're very careful about whether or not what they'll say will alienate someone. Mm-hmm. And so in the West, there is this tendency to say, well, you know, I've got a right to express myself and say what I want or give my opinion. And we should have that, um, that freedom, but we probably should only express it when we really need to, when it matters. Mm-hmm. But we can always consider the person we're talking to and we can think, well, I might feel better saying this, but is it really going to impact our relationship in a positive way? Is it going to make our relationship sustainable or will it damage our relationship? And that, that's something I definitely learned in Japanese culture. There's actually a, a term called kotodama, which implies that words have a spirit and that you should use words carefully mm. or you should, yeah, respect certain words. Um, so it, it's interesting. We're, we're sort of connecting on this theme of how you use language and obviously respecting people. Right, without a doubt. Let, let's talk about this this small community of educators, psychologists, coaches, and trainers who serve others using the Ikigai uh, concept. What made you create that? So it was quite serendipitous. And so this, this actually goes back to 1998 when I returned to Japan to teach English. And this is when I was working for a commercial English conversation school. I'd done all the training and, mm. you know, I was young and ambitious and I'd gone to my, my school for the first day and I was sort of showing off my Japanese, talking to the staff. And we're on a lunch break, feeling really good. And this Japanese co-worker just casually asked, oh, Nick, what's your ikigai in Japanese? And I was like, oh, ikigai, what's, what's that? And, yeah, I was astounded by her definition. And she sort of said, oh, it's, you know, it's your purpose in life, but it's, it also involves, you know, battling through your challenges. And, yeah, I, I can't remember the exact definition or explanation she gave me, but it left me with this, um, I think I responded saying, wow, you have one word that means all that. Uh-huh. And so I remember going into work the next day excited about talking to her more about this one word. And I was shocked and disappointed to find out that she had been transferred. Mm. So that opportunity to have that conversation sort of vanished. And then, you know, life got in the way. And then 20 years later, I see this Venn diagram, four-circle Venn diagram. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but a lot of coaches use it. And it was sort of saying, oh, are you doing something that you love, that you're good at, that the world needs, and that you can be paid for? And in the center was Ikigai. I thought... That's very strange. It's very un-Japanese. Japanese would never define any word like that. But I was thinking, oh, I remember that word. Right. And then I kept on seeing it. I kept on seeing this Venn diagram on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and then it was on TED Talks, and then there was a best-selling book. And I thought, 
all this information on Ikigai is factually incorrect. It's not a Venn diagram. It's not about your one life purpose. It's, it's not the secret to longevity. It's, it's not a word from Okinawa. And I kept thinking someone should do something about it. Someone mm-hmm. should correct this. And then I left it for about a year. And then I saw it on the World Health Organization website again as this Venn diagram. And I thought, right, well, <laughs> I'll do something about it. So I started a podcast. I thought the best thing I could do would be to interview English-speaking researchers, professors in Japan. And I was able to do that and started doing this podcast. And then I thought, I mean, at the time I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to maybe make a course or something as well? Mm. But it was really just to start the podcast as this first step. And then that took off and I got quite a bit of, traction and was gaining an audience and then I remember one day I got this email from a lady in Dubai saying hey love your podcast do you have some sort of coaching program because I'd love to coach this concept and I was like oh okay and I mean I was kind of aware there were people calling themselves guy coaches but using using the western model right and I just thought oh look it's it's not really a concept japanese coach um, and you could certainly research and, and do what I've done, research and use, use these um, this sort of cultural knowledge. But at that same time, as I was doing the podcast, I was finding out there was this growing body of research on Ikigai, and it's very relatable to positive psychology, um, intrinsic motivation, um, and there are actually psychometric tools and scales that Japanese researchers have developed, and they're very applicable to coaching. So this did spark this idea, this sort of light bulb. Well, it is relatable to coaching. And then I kept on getting emails, people saying, oh, do you have some sort of certification program? And I wasn't even sure what that really meant. I was thinking there's certification, um, there's accreditation. And I thought, well, accreditation is some sort of governing body. Right. What, what's certification? And I spoke to my mentor and I said, you just, you just don't make something up like you just don't make a course and certify yourself to you and he's like that's exactly what you do and you should do it you've got uh, these connections to japan you've interviewed the experts you should do it yeah so that was something i was i thought about and then i thought oh you know is this okay is this the right thing to do and i reached out to these professors two professors in particular and said look this opportunity's come up and what, what do you think and they were like yeah do it you know as researchers, it's really hard for us to get our, our research out there. And, yeah, so they were quite supportive. So it sort of serendipitously evolved from, yeah, me wanting to correct this Venn diagram or correct the concept to starting the podcast to growing an audience and then people sort of expressing this interest in yet teaching or using this knowledge to coach people. and. Yeah, it's, it's been two years since I've started training or coaching coaches on this concept, and I feel I've only scratched the surface because there's all these sub-theories and relatable words. So, for example, Ikigai is very much attached to your social world, so it involves meaningful relationships. So there's a sub-theory called Ibasho, and that means your place to be in Japanese. And that's that word now is sort of generating a lot of research because of Japan's unique problems. Japan has all these problems now with social withdrawal, with truancy. Mm-hmm. So they've 
actually doing studies on this concept, ibashol, where they feel oh, many Japanese don't have a place to be. They don't have a place to express themselves. They don't have a social context mm. to um, self-actualize. So this, the study of ikigai has led to all these other words, and it's just fascinating. It's, it never ends. So <laughs> it seems that way. That that does sound extremely fascinating. It does sound like you know something that you can definitely get into and and even go deeper, right? Because when we think about the concepts, right? Where did they start? How did they start? Who who came up with that? particular word or even that that concept and then the deeper you dive into it i'm sure there's a lot of answers that that you're going to get but there's also going to be a lot of questions as well right well the fun the fascinating thing about the language of japanese language is the etymology and also the kanji of certain words so one word that really kind of had this epiphany on me is it's just a word for purpose in japanese which is shimei and then you have shimei khan, which is a sense of purpose. So khan is sense or feeling, and that's that's another thing we'll talk about with ikigai, because ikigai is something you ultimately feel. But I remember really looking at this word shimei, and the characters for this word include use. So the, the, the first character is used in the verb to use. Mm-hmm. Then the second character is life, as in someone's life. Right. So literally the kanji characters are saying use life to mean purpose. So we could understand purpose is how you use your life or how you wish to use your life. And so I thought, wow, that's a fascinating definition of purpose. Like when we, you know, how do we define purpose in, in the West? We often think it's about, you know, working hard to achieve your goals or perhaps helping others. But this idea that it's how you use your life, yeah, really spoke to me. So that's one of the beautiful aspects of the language. Mm. And then often the language evolves. So that word ibashol literally translates to whereabouts. You know, where is someone? Because iru is the verb to exist and bashol means place and combined it becomes ibashol. But from the 70s and 80s with all these problems of truancy, of Japanese socially withdrawing became this word to use in research. And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating how even fairly recently some of these words have changed in their definition. When when you decided to um, go in and, and do your course, I love the fact that, you know, you asked people about it and then you had two professors who actually supported your your endeavor if you will and you know when when we create something we are giving to the community like you are you had a a i guess a a calling for it Mm -hmm. because people were reaching out to you right and then you didn't just jump on and said yep i got you you said let me make sure that what I'm doing is copacetic. It's it's going to be okay. Mm. And then you went to two experts as well, and they were they kind of almost gave you a blessing, if you will, right? And now you've created a course, and you know to create a course is a course worth having, or a course where where people want to be part of is is very commendable, if you will, because 
you're, you're impacting other people. You impact, listen, you can impact a person, but if you impact a person who then goes and impacts mm. others, then your reach has just become more. And you said that your tribe is 40 people, but really your tribe is 40 people plus their people, right? So it's more than 40, isn't it? It's, it's interesting you say all this. I mean, it, it might not be all 40 because, as you know, some people learn something and really embrace it and take it and other people just, oh, that was interesting and now I move on. But I have one man in particular at the moment who is, had a great career in banking, but he studied psychology and he volunteers with trauma victims and yeah, he's this amazing man and he's very aware that he's had this privileged life, that he's done well. But outside of business, you know, or even more important than business is this desire to help people who suffer from extreme trauma. You know, they come home and someone in the family's committed suicide or someone's died. And he does this yeah, as volunteer work. And then he approached me about wanting to learn about Ikigai. Mm whether or not he could incorporate it into his work. And I was, you know, sort of astounded that I'm not qualified, you know, I'm not a qualified psychologist or I'm not even a qualified teacher. I've just been studying Japanese culture and specifically Ikigai. And, yeah, he's already got this strong desire to use it. So that is very satisfying when you teach something to someone and you, you love the concept and you really care about yourself, but they embrace it and they give it that respect then they have a desire to use it. Yeah, it really does make what you do feel that it's it's worth pursuing and you're having this positive impact. Without a doubt. So so Nick, what what is the concept behind Ikigai? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Glad you finally asked. So yeah, we've talked how it's it's not this bliss, it's not this dream job, it's 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 not a word from Okinawa. So there are many romanticized notions about Ikigai. So I'm going to offer you two perspectives. To the average Japanese, Ikigai is something personal and very often very small. It might be their hobby. It might be their pet. Um, it might be for grandparents. It's usually their grandchildren. The last person, the last Japanese person I asked this question to, he, and I didn't even know him. It was a sort of a friend of a friend. We're on Zoom, and I just said, oh, before you go, what's your Ikigai? I kind of thought and said, ah. Oh, camping with my friends. So for a lot of Japanese, this simple, humble um, pursuit or it's a relationship, but it, it's something you feel, and that's the most crucial point. So the, the pioneering researcher of Ikigai, this incredible woman, Miko Kamiya, who wrote this seminal book in the 1960s, defined it as you have Ikigai sources, so that could be a relationship, a hobby, it could be aspects of your work, and then you have Ikigai Khan, which is Ikigai feeling. And so you have these, let's say, my son is my Ikigai. As a parent, I have feelings of love, mm. connection, joy, a sense of purpose as a father. And we, we kind of have this playful banter now. So there's a lot of fun in our relationship. So all those feelings are Ikigai Khan. Now, the, I guess the different perspective or the, the sort of the academic perspective is there's been this large sort of growing body of research from this pioneering researcher, Mirko Kamiya, from the 1960s and onwards, and it's still sort of growing today. So there's a lot of papers, a lot of books being done on Ikigai, and it's very relatable to 
intrinsic motivation. So, you know, ikigai, the things you simply find value in doing and there's no end goal, there's no payoff. Very relatable to positive psychology or even existential um, positive psychology where if we get through a challenge or we overcome something and we develop a stronger sense of ourself, we feel something, we, we feel growth, we feel self-actualization. Mm. So ikigai is really interesting. Japanese use it very casually. They don't make it out to be a big word. Right. And it's often something they don't even talk about. In the West, we've blown it up to be this entrepreneurial sweet spot. But then behind it all, there's this body of research. And this pioneering researcher, Miko Kamiya, discovered that there are seven ikigai needs that you need to satisfy in order to feel ikigai. And they are life satisfaction, change and growth, a bright future, resonance, so that's um, social affiliation, freedom, um, self-actualization. Did I already say self-actualization? And then meaning and value. And then tied to that, having a sense of purpose. So there's, there's sort of really um, eight ikigai needs. Right. But if you think about those eight ikigai needs, they're all in positive psychology literature. So she was, she was sort of 35 years ahead of the positive psychology literature boom that we've enjoyed for the last 20 years. Mm. So it, it's fascinating that it's a cultural concept. It's a, a word Japanese don't really use that often. But behind it all, yeah, there's this growing research. What's interesting, um, Raphael, there's other words that Japanese attach guy to. So guy's a suffix. Mm. So, for example, far more common word is yarigai. And yarigai just means something that's worth doing. You'll, often, mm-hmm. you'll hear that phrase often almost every day. She's saying, oh, I'm joining a gym or I'm going to take up um, a martial art. Your friend might go, oh, yari ga garune. Like, oh, that, that's, that's really worth doing as sort of encouragement. Mm-hmm. And then there's things like uh, manabi guy, which would mean the value of learning. Or as you're a teacher, oshie guy, which means the value of teaching a subject or mm-hmm. the, the value of teaching someone. So someone worth teaching. So we can understand from all this that, oh, okay, for Japanese, it's not a special word. Mm. of a normal word but in the west as it often happens these these words go viral because they're fascinating to us right it's uh it's interesting that you came across the word 20 years later and you're like wait a minute that's not (laughs) what it means right and then you you not only have you done a lot of research on it and 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 you love the language and and you even you want to get into the writing aspects of it but you also decided to write a book, <laughs> so, right? So let, let's talk about your book and, and what what was the concept and, and what was the idea behind writing the book and who did you write the book for? Because a lot of times, you know, when, when we write or when we speak or we even do anything on social media, especially as, as a presenter or anything like that, we always need to know who your audience is, who's your target audience, so who did you write it for and why did you even write it? That's a good question. And I remember spending quite a bit of time on that. And that was something I was encouraged to think it deeply about. You must have some sort of avatar, like you've got to have your ideal reader. Mm. And so actually I really worked hard on that. So it was in the end, it was someone who was, you know, female because they seem more, it's a generalization, yeah. but they seem more interested and uh, more patient 
with understanding the concept. I think we're men, we, we like to take definitions and go, oh, yeah, I kind of know what it is. Where women seem to think, well, really like to learn more about this concept. Mm. Um, so it's female, single, late 20s, early 30s who studied psychology. So that was sort of my ideal client. But at the same time, I knew there would be an audience interested in actually learning the Japanese perspective. So it was a combination of those two things. Because if I wrote the book only for psychologists who were sort of um, female in in their late 20s, early 30s, I I probably wouldn't get many book sales. But that was quite helpful. Because if you go back to your ideal reader, you you really do think about how how do I phrase this? How do I write this? Right. Um, But, I mean, the book was a a source of ikigai in and of itself because I really struggled with English at school. I I had to take extra English. Mm. And I'm sort of okay communicating, but writing, (laughs) um, real real challenge, you know, spelling, grammar. So writing a book was something I never thought I'd do. And, yeah, ikigai was this important subject. And in a way, it was also the next sort of step, like, for Mm. my business. So I'm being sort of transparent about that too. Like, oh, I'd be really smart to write a book that offers a Japanese research perspective. And I was very lucky because I had all this content on my podcasts. My book is full of all these quotes right. from, you know, Japanese researchers and authors I had interviewed. So I was very lucky to be sort of peering over the shoulders of giants um, and got there again, their blessings to, to share their insights. And so that's made it a real challenge because I wanted to really be respectful to them. And the worst possible thing I can think about when you write a book is having to do citations. (laughs) And I have over like 200. So having to cite a quote or reference a book, um, that's the last thing I'd be wanting to do. But yeah, I was driven by this sense of purpose and this love for Japanese culture. And Obviously, this desire to share something authentic and and accurate. And, yeah, I never thought I'd do that. And I actually never thought I'd get through it some, some days. I just thought, oh, this is taking so long and I can't finish this paragraph. But I was very lucky I had um, an amazing editor who's actually a member of my community. She was in my first cohort. So that was amazing to have someone supporting me. And it's actually a very intimate process when you're writing something and you're sharing it with this one person for the first time. And she was very careful and caring, but also um, encouraging, but also, you know, challenged me on things and said, you know, you you need to write more on this or there's too much here. We need to edit it down. So you're putting your trust in this one person and you're sharing all these intimate memories and yeah, it, it felt like this strange sort of intellectual, emotional intimacy every time she was checking my, uh, you know, my my edits and doing re-edits. It was a very satisfying experience. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you, you know, um, the question I have for you is why write the book? Yeah, so the book was driven by this desire to think this is crazy. Almost everything online or even in books like they're selling books is either factually incorrect or it's romanticized and I just felt that's wrong and I thought you know Japan's given me so much it is my second country and there's a good chance I'll you know maybe retire there and I just felt this sense of obligation to offer a perspective 
that was authentic and accurate. And yeah, I mean, it's a self-published book. So this idea of be a bestseller is, this is not realistic. So it wasn't driven by this dream of, you know, making hundreds of sales a day. I thought that's probably not going to happen. But if I do this, I thought if I do this, it would kind of release this, not a burden, but I just had this, I thought this is something I have to do. Um, you have to share. In my mind, yeah. Like just in my mind, I thought this is one of my life challenges is to to, to do the one thing I hate, <laughs> you know, which is right. Right. It's not my bliss. Um, there's actually in, in the book, I, I share, sort of share this story with my wife. I, I was venting my frustration to my wife saying, ah, oh, this book's driving me crazy. And she kind of matter of factly replied saying, well, you are doing the one thing you're most terrible at. <laughs> brutal but true yeah that was driven by this desire to share a japanese perspective and i wanted to be really yeah really careful with that and respectful mm-hmm. and yeah in a way i've left a little legacy too you know to to my son and hopefully the book will impact some people in a positive way and give them answers to you know the question what what really is ikigai? What is ikigai in the context of Japanese culture? So what what's interesting is that that's the kanji for kan, and that can mean feeling, awareness, perception. So ikigai kan is this word that this pioneering researcher Mirko Kamiya basically coined, mm-hmm. and that's why the emphasis is on feel a life worth living, and then the the Japanese you know Japanese wisdom for fulfilling and meaningful life. So I'm not sort of saying it's about happiness or about success. It really is this wisdom to have a fulfilling and meaningful life. And then on the back is those eight um, needs I was sort of mentioning. Right. So life satisfaction, change and growth, a bright future, resonance, freedom, self-actualization, meaning and value, and a sense of purpose. And I guess that's my way of, I call that the cameo flower after this amazing pioneering researcher. So my, my hope would be that would go viral mm-hmm. and people would recognize, oh, there was this pioneering researcher, Mirko Kamiya, that um, wrote this book. And unfortunately, it's, it's not in English. But of all people, of any sort of framework, it should be hers that we're referencing and right. exploring, not a, a Western model that's together by sort of this serendipitous. Um, I actually interviewed the man who merged the, the purpose Venn diagram with Vicky guy. Right. And for him, it was just a cool idea, nothing more. Right. And it's kind of went viral and blew up and you have, you have coaches and even um, executive leaders sharing the, the Venn diagram mm. at events where there are 5,000 people and it's just, wow. <laughs> it's factually wrong. So it's, it's really strange how uh, these Japanese words become misunderstood and then go viral. Yeah. You know, everybody's looking for a way to get noticed. Um, and, and so you'll even see companies come up and they'll start using words from a different language to incorporate something that they want to do. And sometimes they didn't dive deep enough, like you did, to understand the concept or origin of the word, even where it truly, truly came from. And what the real meaning was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I appreciate that you did that. By the way, I do want a signed copy of that amazing book. Okay. Oh, I owe um, you one, so you'll, you'll get one. I'm actually getting 
you'll see on the spine, yes. you'll see this stamp. So that's called a, a kaku in. So kaku right. means square and in means stamp. And I had it a little bit hard to see, but I had it especially designed for my community. Nice. I actually got it in the book. Inside the book. Let's find the page. And so this stamp sort of represents the values of my community. Mm -hmm. So in the middle is guy. Right. And then this one means, this is kokoro. So this means mind, heart, and spirit. You'd probably understand this from martial arts, how Asian cultures generally understand the mind and heart and spirit as one entity. Right. Then you have this one for friendship. And then this is body. So it represents health. And then this one represents um Waza represents our skills. And this was hand carved and my wife's actually bringing it back. So I'll have it tomorrow. So I'll be oh, able nice. to stamp your, your copy. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's excellent. So, you know, you, you did mention that your son and your wife are in Japan for two weeks and they left you home. Yeah. This goes back to pre COVID. So we were all about to go. We, we booked in March of 2000 to go in June. Mm. And we were going to go before the Olympics. We we're going to go before the Olympic rush. Right. And then, yeah, COVID happened. And then, yeah, that's sort of, oh, that's, more, that's more than two years ago, yeah? Um, mm. Yeah, and then there were sort of a few things. So actually I, I wanted to go, but then in a way I didn't want to go because I thought if I'm going – I really want to go and see these researchers. I've got a lot of friends in Tokyo. But during COVID, my, my wife lost a few aunts. Mm. Um, and there were sort of personal reasons for her to go as well. And, yeah, I had some commitments here. And we, we usually go back every two or three years. And we, we've always sort of done the same thing. We stay with family for a week and I catch up with friends. But I thought, look. You go, you have a, a mother and son holiday and I'll, I'll probably go next year and then I'll be able to do this thing where I want to personally thank all these professors and um, authors I've interviewed. And my wife's sort of quite shy, not into that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd be dragging her along to something she really wouldn't enjoy. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the br uh, brutal truth, yeah. So Okay, but, you know, you're a smart man because you understand what, what's good for her and what's not. <laughs> uh, Nick, w one of the things, and, and I like the fact that you're going to go in and thank everyone that you've had on your show. Tell me, do you still have that podcast? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> for sure. I mean, one of the challenges of my podcast is finding a guest sometimes because I, I, I generally have niched it down to someone who's either written a paper or a book. And actually, this Friday, I'm interviewing a Japanese man on this term he's coined called rollfulness. Um, so mm. he's written a, a paper in English on this idea of rollfulness. And having a role, as you would know, gives you this sense of life meaning, mm -hmm. sense of purpose, satisfaction. So you're, you're, you're teaching martial arts and public speaking and coaching. And we have this strong sense of self. Our roles are usually aligned to our values. But they often involve these small behaviors, you know, greetings, conversation, maybe even bowing. Um, and for some reason, it's these small things in roles that matter. It doesn't really, want, so it doesn't really matter what the role is, just as long as you 
practice and engage with these small things with other people, right. it seems to give your life structure and satisfaction. So I'm interviewing him um, this Friday. And yes. yeah, the podcast is called The Ikigai Podcast. So if you're looking for a, guess, an authentic perspective, um, I've interviewed everyone from Japan's leading Ikigai researcher who, to be, um, you know, to be honest, he's not a really good English speaker, but he was incredibly courageous to come onto my first podcast and sort of mm. answer all these difficult questions. So I'm, I feel so grateful towards him. I'll, wow, you really helped me kickstart that first episode. And then I've interviewed, you know, anthropologists. There's this anthropologist, Gordon Matthews, back in the 90s. He interviewed 52 Americans and 52 Japanese on this theme of what's your ikigai. Hmm. He spent about 10 hours or more than 10 hours with each person and transcribed it all. Wow. Wrote his dissertation. And then he condensed it into this amazing book. And he was fascinating guest mm. so i've had all these amazing guests who've offered me insights from ikigai and its relationship to leisure to uh, the health benefits of ikigai to relatable concepts like arugamama this word that means similar to acceptance and it means understanding the true nature of things mm-hmm. it's a real joy for me I, I get to have these enjoyable conversations but i also learn something so yeah yeah <laughs> You know, and I love what, what you just said about not only having the conversations, but that you're learning. And and the reason you're learning, I, I believe in, and I'm listening to you, is because you're listening. You're you're listening to understand, right? To try to get a new concept, get get the idea behind it, and to go deeper, right? Because that's that's what a conversation. And I'm so happy that you took out the time today, tonight for you, right? To, to have a conversation with me and to allow me and my audience to understand a little bit more about Ikibai and um, Ikigai. Ikigai, not Bai, right? Ikigai. Think of a guy, Ikigai, yeah. yeah. Ikigai. <laughs> and um, I, I love the Ikigai tribe.com uh, because what is that different than your website? Or Because they're two different websites, right? Yeah, so the, the Ikigai tribe is, I mean, I guess it's the business slash community. And that was the first, you know, as you know, when you start a, a podcast or a business or something, you usually come up with a domain name. And I was thinking, oh, I really want to build community. And so, yeah, I stumbled upon yeah, Ikigai tribe and oh, that would be a great name. Mm. And yeah, it wasn't taken. So I managed to get that. And then the ikigaikan.com is obviously the the book website, and that was good. And actually, the, the scroll behind me, do you see this scroll? Yes. That, that actually reads Ikigai Khan. Okay. And you'd probably actually like this one as well. It is this word, kokorozashi. So on the top, have, you have warrior or samurai, and underneath you have heart. Mm. So it could mean the heart of the samurai or the, you know, the mind of the warrior and the actual word kokorozashi, again, kokoro meaning heart, but zashi comes from the verb zasu, which means to point. So it's where your mind is focused on, mm. where your heart points. And yeah, this is why I love Japanese. It's just, oh, yeah. uh, it's just fascinating. You know, l- looking at the scrolls, right, 
it they're pieces of art. Mm. Not only is it words and it has meaning and it has so much behind it, but the Japanese, ju- just the, the language is, is, is very different, if you will, obviously from, from English, but the words are pieces of art. Yeah. Wasn't that fascinating? They place all this emphasis on writing one word. Mm. And it's, it's, I, I write about this in my book, this idea of captured flow. So when we look at that, if you were in the room, you'd probably have this emotional reaction. You'd, you'd sense something. Right. So what you're experiencing is the flow of the artist. And so there's this expression in calligraphy, the ink never lies. So once, mm. once they've done their brush strokes, you have a, a picture of where they were, um, where they focused, but also had they become egoless right or were they worried were they too focused were they thinking too much and so this idea of captured flows uh, sort of fascinating idea that a craftsman patches their flow in in their pottery my my, my actually my father-in-law is a potter and he makes traditional tea ceremony cups so you can you can sort of feel something about certain pieces and they seem to call to you same with calligraphy so we get to experience the flow of the artist and yeah, it's sort of amazing. Yeah. It really is. Well, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time today. Really, really appreciate you, my friend. And I look forward to our connection and, uh, you know, continued connection. Any words that you'd like to share with anyone who is more interested in, in learning about your tribe or even to uh, get your book? First, I'd like to thank you. And as you touched on, um, I, I realized how much you've proactively listened, been such a humble and uh, kind guest. So I really appreciate you having me on, but also giving me time to talk. I've probably ranted a bit too much a few times, but <laughs> not at all, not at all. <laughs> but I really enjoyed this opportunity. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to continue our conversation. And I guess, yeah, just. If someone would like a, a Japanese perspective, um, it's available on Amazon. And I'm, I'm trying to build a book club as well. Yeah. So the book club would be a, a, just a bonus and I'd have a monthly discussion on the book and people would sort of attend with Q&A. Mm, I, I like that. That's a great idea. Awesome. All right, my friend. Thank you and have a blessed evening for you and good morning to everybody. Thank you, Sufi Raphael. Really appreciate your time. Yes, my friend. Um, you know, and so before we go, because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, I have this this cup somebody gave me a while ago. It says the boss, right? But I am drinking tea, right? Nice. Good. And Japanese is drinking of the tea, the ceremony, the whole deal. What is your favorite tea? Oh, my favorite tea? Well, there's, um, I think it's mugicha, which is a type of barley tea. Um, but also, actually, there's a, a tea in tea ceremony, and I saw this on YouTube, actually. And sometimes they make green tea so thick, mm. it looks like green tar, like it looks so thick. Wow. So um, I think you'd be on a... A buzz if you ever had that. I think I want to try it now. <laughs> yeah, a, there is something about um, matcha. Yeah, they call that matcha tea. Right. Um, 
one of my fondest memories of Japan was going to a, a beautiful garden and this Japanese lady whipped up this matcha. We, we, we didn't have to do, you know, tea ceremony, but I just went with my friend. It was a quiet day. She whipped up this beautiful green tea and in this garden we just sat and enjoyed this tea. Mm. Wow, they really do take the time to appreciate nature, right. art, but also the experience of, you know, drinking and this appreciation of beauty in Japan sort of reminds you to be centred and, and focused and to be grateful for what you, you know, experience or what you already have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. You have an amazing, amazing rest of your day. You too. Thanks, mate. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. <laughs>